Welcome to the TC Podcast. Josh Larson here with a quick word about this episode. As we've done before, we're sharing the audio from our online gathering of the TC Movie Club. This time, a discussion of Joel and Ethan Cohen's No Country for Old Men. This was the third time the group has gotten together as part of our series on the films of the Cohen brothers. We've been calling it O Brothers, Where Art Thou? as we look at a handful of their movies through an Old Testament, New Testament framework. We have one more movie and meeting to go, True Grit. That online gathering will be at 2 p.m. Sunday, March 27. If you want to join the club, sign up at thinkchristian.net slash movieclub. If you want to watch the video essays I've made for each film to jumpstart our discussions, you can find those on the Think Christian YouTube channel. All four videos for Fargo, Oh Brothers Where Art Thou, No Country for Old Men, and True Grit are up there. We'll return with regular episodes of the podcast shortly. For now, enjoy our TC Movie Club discussion on No Country for Old Men. Welcome again to the TC Movie Club, our third edition of the O Brothers Where Art Thou series we've been doing. It's our third film by Joel and Ethan Cohen, um, one of their best, according to most people, No Country for Old Men. I like to think we're hitting all of their best with this series, but certainly No Country for Old Men is right there at the top for a lot of critics and fans of the Cohens. I'm Josh Larson, Think Christian editor. Uh, over at thinkchristian.net. It's great to see you again, familiar faces and a few new ones. I would like to welcome my co-host this time, another familiar name and face for those of you who read TC or listen to the TC podcast. It is Sarah Welch Larson. So Sarah, you are, um, as I said, regular TC writer and podcaster, but also the new co-host of the Seen and Believing podcast, which we love. So welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I am definitely one of those people who thinks that this is the best Coen Brothers movie, or at, least, at the very least, it's my all-time favorite. So I'm excited to be talking about it with you all. Yeah, can't wait to dig in. And we also have Zachary Lee, another TC writer, who is going to be our chat monitor as well. Zachary, good to see you again. Thanks so much, Josh. Pleasure to be here, as always. Of course. So we're going to... Um, post a poll and maybe Zachary, I'll get back to you about where you stand on No Country for Old Men a little bit later in the conversation when we do post that poll for everybody. But Sarah, let's go back to you and tell us a little bit um, about your relationship with the Coen brothers overall. Obviously you said No Country a favorite, um, but uh, yeah, where does it kind of land in general? Where do they land in terms of filmmakers? Um, And then, you know, we can segue into this guiding question we've been using. Where would you place No Country for Old Men if you had to as an Old Testament or a New Testament film? Maybe you could even talk a little bit about what that means to you. Um, but yeah, tell me a little bit about your relationship with the Coen brothers. Yeah, um, I came to them a little bit late. Um, I think I first really started getting into them right around the same time that Hail Caesar came out. So um It originally came out right around my birthday that year. So I actually went to go see it for my birthday and just sort of fell in love and was like, what is up with these zany guys? (laughs) Um, So I went back through a little bit of their filmography and there are some gaps that I need to fill in. Um, But I appreciate just how versatile they are and how insightful they are, I think, about what it is to be human and and what it is to be very deeply fallible, but also... um, 
I don't know, like a, a, a beloved person and a, someone with value and worth, no matter how much you, you screw up. Like, I think they have a lot of love for a lot of their characters, even even the very broken ones. Um, so they're among my favorite filmmakers. Um, and then this one, I think, is just it's so different from any of the other Coen Brothers movies that I've seen that it just sort of knocked me sideways the first time I saw it. And um, every single time I watch it, I think I'll be able to get through the entire movie without crying. And then that final Tommy Lee Jones monologue just makes me weep every single time. So I can't really top that. Yeah. Um, it's a powerhouse. It, that's so that's fascinating that you say, you know, you came to them and thought early on, they really have a love for their characters because they got knocked earlier in their career for the opposite, you know, like, are they making fun of these people? Are these caricatures? And I wonder if encountering them with Hail Caesar maybe was a part of that. I mean, there's definitely comic absurd characters in that one, but I think of that as a very joyous movie in a lot of ways. Um, so I don't know if that's kind of what gave you that perspective on their work, starting with Hail Caesar. I think it was that. And then the um, joint performance at the center of Raising Arizona between Nicolas Cage and Holly Hunter. Like, I think they love those characters as well. And so those yes. two just sort of have colored all my experience of all of their movies as well. That um, makes sense. Yeah. Um, and as for the question about Old Testament or New Testament, I kind of went back and forth on this one. But ultimately, I think I'm going to have to go with New which feels like I'm going out a little bit on a limb here, but um, it's it's very bleak. And I think that it's sort of, it, it's an appropriate movie to be watching at this time of year, I think, as we're about to start diving into Lent, um, because it feels very much like apocalyptic, like everything is is going down underneath a rising tide of death and destruction. And it kind of makes me wonder, like, is this how the disciples must have felt after Golgotha? So there's that plus like, there's a lot of, not a lot of, but there are some very small glimmers of hope that come here and there and not so much like hope from everything is going to be made right again, but hope of defiance in the face of evil. And I'm mostly thinking here um, about Carla Jean's line about how the coin don't have no say, where she says like, you are this force of death and destruction. It's not the coin's fault. It's not chance. It's you who is choosing to make these decisions. And I'm going to choose to be defiant in the face of that. And I just, I love that. So that's where I stand on this movie. Such a great scene, such a, something about the Coen, sometimes they'll give a defining line to a very minor character. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an example of that because it does help. Not that this movie entirely, I think, will ever click into place for me. That's why you can return to the Coen brothers. But that's one of those lines where it starts to, you know, even the first time I saw it and you're just trying to keep up and wrap your mind around it. When she says that, you are you can kind of grab onto that and and start following what that might mean. And the rest of the film clicks into place a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I love that moment. Yeah, that and um, the scene, and it was called out in, in your video essay about this movie as well, where they're talking about um, the sheriff and, and his secretary are talking about dedicating themselves anew to truth and justice daily. And I think that in the face of that kind of, of death and destruction, that's really all that you can do is continue to dedicate yourself to that to to that truth and to that justice and then trust that god's going to follow through like it's not on us <laughs> that's vanity if you think that it is on us so um that's that's how i feel about that all right well 
I love that argument, even though, yes, folks who watch the video essay know I might fall on the other side of it and go with <laughs> Old Testament. Um, so speaking of which, I'm going to, we already have a split vote. So it seems like a good time to go ahead and launch that poll, um, which we'll leave up there. Hopefully you can see that as, um, as the conversation progresses. So if you feel really strongly, feel free to vote now. If you want to hear um, what other folks have to say and see if you're swayed a little bit, we'll leave that open and um, then return to it towards the end of our conversation. So yeah, thanks, Sarah. I appreciate that. Um, and maybe that this is a good place to start as we like to is with this Old Testament, New Testament question. Um, we'll leave time at the end. Again, we should wrap up in about an hour or so, and we'll leave time at the end to go in other directions. We're not going to just limit it to that, but it's a good starting point um, and gives some coherency to this series. Um, yeah, you know, as I said in the video, I kind of see it um, as Old Testament because the law here is such a presence. You know, we have once again in a Coen Brothers film characters who directly represent the law, but they're so powerless, um, like Marge was really in the face of true evil um, in, in Fargo. But I also recognize that they represent, um, Tommy Lee Jones particularly, this sort of beautiful stand in for God's justice and righteousness as much as they can. And that was something I'm trying to look here at all the faces if Scott McGee is with us, but that is something that Scott McGee kind of brought up towards the end of our conversation of, oh, brother, where art thou? Um, and he talked about the beauty of the law and a different way of looking at the Old Testament. And that really got me thinking and, um, and brought that into my watch of no country. And that's kind of the lens that I did see um, Tommy Lee Jones' character through. And it helped me kind of think about the law in that way and how this could be still an Old Testament film that nevertheless represented the beauty of the law rather than maybe the limitations of the law. Um, we see both, I think. But anyways, that's where I landed. I've had my say. Um, so let's go ahead and open this up to people who want to make their case. Uh, I know that Scott Kohler, not to not to um, call you out, Scott, but you emailed me just today or yesterday. Didn't get a chance to get back to you, but you emailed me with some thoughts. So um, maybe you can share those at some point. Otherwise, otherwise, if anyone else, go ahead and use that raise hand feature. We'll bump you to the top of the line and um, we'll hear what you have to say. Anyone want to get us started? All right. Yeah, go ahead, Scott, since I mentioned you. Yeah, I, I landed um, similarly to, for similar reasons that Sarah said about this for New Testament. Um, particularly the way I saw it was um, the way that humanity's problem is outlined. I think of the Old Testament as mostly thinking in terms of response to the law is obedience and disobedience. Whereas when you get to the New Testament, especially in Romans 5 to 8. Um, scholars especially like to look at those chapters and say that here we have an apocalyptic view of sin and death as powers. And that's what I saw as I was watching the movie this time was to see evil as something that is not, cannot be just dealt with like you can respond obediently or disobediently to a law, but something that's basically out of control. So with Shigor, you have this figure that clearly represents uh, that kind of beyond human, suprahuman um, evil. And then with 
Llewellyn as well, I think we see somebody who is not in control of his own responses. He just follows the line as it goes with, you know, almost a Roman seven. I don't do the, the good that I want to do. It's like he just follows that the whole way down. And then with mm. Tommy Lee Jones as that Ed Bell figure, uh, Ed Tom Bell is essentially looking and saying, what do we do in the face of this? So I see it as giving us a New Testament view of the problem. It doesn't get to the New Testament solution. Um, but mm. that, that was how I saw it. Yeah, I like that. And I love that characterization of Llewellyn because I don't always know what to do with him in this story, you know, because he's the less charitable viewing is that he's just kind of like a gear that the movie needs to pit Sugar and Ed Tom against each other. You know, you need that motivation, but obviously, um, you know, there's more to it than that. So I like how you described him too, as sort of on this track that he knows is not the right track, but he just continues to follow. Um, he's warned how many times against it as the film goes on. Pretty much every interaction he has with another character is some sort of warning, right? But what does he do? Just what you said, he kind of proceeds in the same direction. So, so yeah, that's a helpful way to think about that character. Um, I want to jump Eli. on top of that, oh, yeah. though, a little ahead, bit, um, because uh, Tim Christensen uh, commented in the chat about um, if anyone gives even a cup of cold water, like that verse, um, and he mentions that Llewellyn would have been fine if he hadn't gone back with the water for yes. the dying man. And that's an important choice to make, I think, because it's this time around watching this movie, I I'd forgotten just how callous he was towards that man at first. Um, but it eats him up and he chooses to go back and to try to bring this mercy to someone who probably has already passed away, but he's going to try it anyway, just even though he admits it's the stupid decision to make. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Thanks, Tim. And I love how that motivation is set up by the Coens where I think it's been a while since I watched it now, but I think he's like trying to sleep and he wakes up. Right. And mm -hmm. even when he comes home, he's, he's rude to Carla Jean in a way that's like kind of out of nowhere, but we, we understand once he wakes up and he's even muttering when he's filling the thing up with water, that that's, what's been eating at him since he mm -hmm. left that guy, you know, this is why he's, this is really why he's grumpy. And finally he does make that decision, which is one of mercy, but is also one that condemns him at least for, in terms of his safety. Yeah. Yeah. Eli, go ahead. Uh, yeah, yeah. Thanks. Um, I've been wanting to jump into these and this is, so this is my first time I've been able to, but, um, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I feel pretty strongly, um, on the new Testament side. Um, and there was, um, there was a passage that was really stuck in my head, like, the whole movie uh it's uh in galatians 6 starting verse 7 it says uh do not don't be deceived god is not mocked for whatever a person sows he will also reap because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh but the one who sows to the spirit will reap eternal life from the spirit let us not get tired of doing good for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up it goes on to say continue to do good especially to the household of faith um, and that was just stuck in my head, the, the whole movie. I do think that a lot of the movie functions to like push us into seeing things from Ed Tom's perspective. Um, you know, he's not in the movie the most, but I do think that um, how he sees things is kind of how we're supposed to view the movie. Um, it just seems like it starts with him and ends with him. And so, 
and then that dream he shares at the end is almost like it gave me like a second Timothy vibe, you know, you're because he's talking the whole movie about his grandfather and his dad, you know, that legacy of of justice. Um, and he's he is he's weary in it. <laughs> and, um, you know, this encouragement that Paul gives the Galatians is is just like, man, uh, he says, don't be weary, but man, am I weary and and trying to do what's right. And, you know, I, I don't think the movie offers, you know, any consolation in that, but I do think it very much um, kind of validates that weariness that we feel in doing good in the face of, of such, such evil in the world and such, um, yeah, I, I don't know. And that, that dream, you know, you know, him saying like, I woke up after his dream, you know, you could see that as, as bleak and, you know, hopeless, but really like he, he still had the dream that his, that his father was out there somewhere and that, you know, he would eventually be there with him. And to me, that was kind of a heavenly dream, you know, um, that hope that even though things are still bleak and I'm still kicking here in this world, I don't understand. I know that he's out there and uh, you know, I'll see him again one day. Um, it's kind of the the vibe I got from that that final dream. So that those are a few of my thoughts. I kind of uh, yeah. rambled on, but no, no, thank you. Um, maybe we can circle back to that dream and get interpretations of it because it's so rich, um, and I think there's a lot there. But the idea, first of all, his bewilderment, Ed Tom's bewilderment, is very much to me an echo of Marge's bewilderment. You know. Um, the it's a beautiful day. It, he kind of gives a variation of that. He just doesn't understand. And he expresses it in that um, early conversation with um, his his colleague about I'm trying to remember the crime. I think someone um, was arrested for killing a girl and said that he had always planned to do it and would would do it again. And I think Ed Tom's response is, I don't know what to make of that. Um, and doesn't Marge say something almost the same kind of phrasing? um, in Fargo. And so we have that bewilderment, but then we also have what we've touched on. Um, and you were talking about is the dedication, you know, in the face of that, how do we respond? Um, goes back to the other scene, dedicate myself anew. Um, you know, his choice is to have that perseverance, that persistence. Um, so yeah, thank you for that. Uh, let's see, uh, Ryan, you want to go ahead? Yeah, thanks. Um, like Eli, this is my first time joining, which makes me feel bad for what I'm about to say, because I, I really like what Sarah said about like this being a Lenten sort of movie, like, uh, you know, like the Friday to Sunday feeling of uh, not knowing what to do. Um, but there's also, I feel like a lot of Ecclesiastes sort of meaninglessness. I almost see this movie as intertestamental, where we've got like Ed Tom is he's following the law, but it's been so long and he's tired and he doesn't know what it's going towards. Why are we doing this? That then would be like, cause I've always wondered if waking up is like, and then I woke up and realized like that, that dream was garbage or something, but I like the idea of, and then I woke up is the start of the new Testament or something, you know, like um, theoretically. So like, I don't like this being a new Testament movie because there's so little hope uh, in it. Um, but I also don't think it's, I, I, I can see that Ed Tom loves the law, like you were talking about, or has, has a dedication to the law. Um, but it's sort of like, 
it's it's losing its steam for him uh that like he's waiting for something and yeah i don't know i don't have much more to say about it. that's just sort of the feeling i get that there's there's just sort of a like somebody I just saw somebody said in the chat like a silence there are times in the movie where the only sound is like wind like empty wind yes um i think like too when um ed tom is looking at the empty um doorknob in the hotel there's like a howling like there's like a little wind and um he's he's just constantly staring into emptiness that's what i think that like black tv is too where um they're both just looking at nothing it's interesting that ed tom and, and sugar occupy the same seat and look at nothingness and sugar says well i'm gonna go in guns blazing and ed tom says there's got to be more than just mm. yeah so yeah yeah, it's Sarah. It sounds like that resonates with you. The intertestamental idea. Yeah, it very much does. Um, I was going to try to argue for something where it's it's more about the um, apocryphal books, but I don't know enough about the, the apocryphal books to make that yeah, argument yeah. properly. All right. Um, yeah, I was gonna jump in really quickly, just with yeah, go ahead, some Zachary. helpful comments, because yeah, I feel Jason, you had this line about a film about God's silence, which I feel like it ties well with what you were saying, Ryan, about the kind of emptiness in space. And I think even toward, I think that line, right, where Ed Tom's talking about how he thought, right, as he got older, God would kind of come into his life in a big way, but he doesn't blame him for not mm -hmm. doing that. So, and, and Steve, Eli, you guys are talking about too, like just demonstrating the need, the thirst for change, really, that I think it, the film does really well. So, yeah, just kind of tying in with that theme you were saying, Ryan, but setting the stage yeah. in many ways for that transition. Thanks, Zachary. Uh, mm -hmm. I think we can go to Phil next. Unmute myself. It always works best. There you um, go. So uh, like Sarah, this is probably one of uh, my favorite Coen brother films. I've, I've actually taught this film uh, for years in my high school English courses. And so I've spent far too much time um, with it and probably have too much to say. So I will limit it to some very um key points i i'm i really like the intertestament I, I came in with kind of an old testament mind the sense of the wilderness um this time in which um there is that that wandering um out there and i think if we look at the cohen brothers use of the environment here that this is the desert that there there is this very much a um a seeking and a searching for something better uh if we look at ed tom who is our protagonist and i think that's one of the key elements that's often missed in this text is that we we spend so much time following llewellyn in this cat and mouse game and and we have ed tom far behind i guess trying to to catch up that the the novel really highlights ed tom's sins right of of, of him abandoning his 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 men in the middle of war, of, of being the only survivor um, and carrying that guilt with him. And so when we get to that line in, in the monologue of, I don't blame God for you know not coming into my life, there's that guilt that he has carried with him while trying now to do the right thing for the rest of his life by taking up the, the sheriff's badge and, and really trying to uphold law. And we see numerous times how he's trying to make sense of the law in in as the times change um and not able to do it and he's in the wilderness just unable to make sense and he has great conversations with the the sheriff in the restaurant the green hair and the the bones and the noses and 
yes sir and and then with uh, with ellis later on right which is the vanity uh piece and and ed tom just can't bring himself to understand and it forces him in into that retirement and i think the key element for the cohen brothers for me though and in, in where this all the hopelessness really drives home or at least the wandering drives home is in that final dream sequence and just before that we've had Shigura walk off into the the distance and the Cohen brothers cross dissolve um Shigura walking away and and it becomes a tr the tree that is rooted right behind Ed Tom's shoulder throughout the rest of that monologue and for me I've always had that interpretation of that evil that Shigura represents is so unbeatable and it's undefeatable and Ed Tom has finally come to that it's it's rooted right in his uh, soul and when he gives that final monologue I want there to be hope right the fire and the darkness and I care you know my father carrying it you know in a horn um like they did in the old days it's very road like as well going back to Cormac McCarthy again carrying that fire but then he wakes up he has that hope that it's out there and again the Cohen brothers use of both silence and light so he says, and then I woke up, we get shot, reverse shot, we have the ticking clock in the background, and then it cuts to black, and there's nothing, right? And that, that to me is that dire hopelessness that exists for Ed Tom, and that he's failed, and, and he's had to quit, right? He just can't, he can't do it anymore. So for me, it's that sense of wilderness, that, that hopelessness. Yeah, there's so much in that, but, you know, yeah. I think for me, that's where I'll, I'll leave it. I'm glad you mentioned that about the, the environment, the topography. And I knew making the video essay, I needed, you know, a couple of seconds of just those shots of all of that vast emptiness. Um, and didn't even really realize it was tying into this wilderness idea that you're talking about, but thank you. That's, that's very helpful. All right. I'm not sure if it's Tim or Tim who's up next, but one of you. Uh, well, we've both got things to say, if that's all right, if we can grab the mic. That's perfectly fine. <laughs> um, so, hey, from the UK. Uh, thanks, uh, Ryan, for stealing all our best points as well that we were <laughs> going to add in. But um, I think I'll go first, and then you can pick up with your, your thought. Um, yeah, Josh, I watched your essay before re-watching the film, and I came into the film expecting to see the end of Judges, everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. And I think that ha that holds true for a lot of it. There's just that Cohen brothers' sense of complete moral ambiguity across the board, and everyone struggling to sense make in the midst of that. But yeah, hearing some of the discussion and reflecting on it afterwards, I, I find myself agreeing with people who have found resonance with Ecclesiastes. And I think Ed Tom, for me, is the teacher. He's trying to make sense of what's going on. And death is this spectre over everything that seems to, again, be pretty arbitrary. And there's these glimpses of God. Uh, yeah, we don't get much in the film as to his, his sense of belief or not in whether God is there. I think, he, I think he has a sense that God is there, but he wanted God to be more present to him, but God didn't show up. And again, that, that sounds like the teacher in Ecclesiastes to me. So, and I remember the first time I saw it in the cinema, I was so shocked that Llewellyn was just 
written out of the film three quarters of the way through and it, it's an off-screen death as well I, I thought this shouldn't be happening this this is not the way the universe is meant to work and it left me with almost with that sense of longing for like I, I need there to be meaning and hopefulness in the universe I need God to show up and that actually in the in a kind of inverse paradoxical way no country for all men for me is a it is a film that gives me a longing for the gospel for yeah for goodness for hope to break in so and then i'll hand to tim who has some extra thoughts on that yeah sure. yeah first so, of go uh, tim is that tim yearsley real quick okay good I th as soon as you started talking um so i've connected with tim through the uh, london institute for contemporary christianity so um good to see you again um and yeah go ahead tim add to that yeah so we were sort of chatting initially after the film uh, about how this is we, we couldn't see this as a new testament film because for us the new testament is defined by grace and mercy and redemption and none of that is present for us in no country for old men and yeah we we also use the phrase intertestamental about this and actually that it sort of exists in that place where you're starting to see the law completely breaking down before which point you don't, you, you don't have a solution to that yet. And I think we talked about how Tommy Lee Jones is always following Javier Bardem. He's never there before and he's never there at the time. He, he's always one step behind and the, the law is failing to catch up to these this, this person that's just in complete disrespect for it. And I think you kind of see Tommy Lee Jones pushing more into the law, but he, he starts off with this big monologue about lawmen not needing to use guns and then you know you see them when they first break into Llewellyn's trailer his partner pulls a gun and Tommy Lee Jones doesn't and then that when Tommy Lee Jones enters the hotel towards the end he pulls his gun and he doesn't declare himself and I think that's sort of a, again it's it's his acknowledgement of actually that he's pushing further into this law but it's not enough you know that he has to resort to violence and retribution rather than sort of what the law is meant to evoke i kind of want to yeah, push back or like thought, oh sorry go ahead i'm going to just jump in you, we talked about the saturday as well you, you talked about the saturday all right well i heard him say it and then i anyway imposed my own opinion on what i heard him say which was yeah <laughs> maybe maybe no country for all men then given what all of what tim said sits on holy saturday so you you're looking at the cross and you're thinking there's right it's all come to an end it doesn't actually mean anything after all hmm. um the law was didn't do anything to help us or protect us and yet you can't shake that longing for something better something different maybe it is new testament after all but in that very strange place in the new testament that's as far as we hmm. got yeah i kind of want to push back a little bit on uh tim's observation which is a good one um about tommy lee jones about ed tom bell relying more and more on on guns and not trusting in the law quite so much um but there is a moment fairly late in the movie where he and Llewellyn speak on the phone um or sorry when Llewellyn and Cora Jean speak on the phone and she mentions that Ed Tom Bell wants to help him and there's clear that there's some sort of a history between Bell and between Llewellyn like the two don't necessarily trust each other Llewellyn has clearly been on the wrong side of the law before and Bell is still offering the help that he can give um, because he knows that Llewellyn is in trouble. So I think that he's trying to extend that grace. It's just that it hasn't been fulfilled yet. 
So maybe more of that Holy Saturday-ness right there. Yeah, I like that other way of thinking about Holy Saturday as a variation on the intertestamental idea too. Let's see. Um, we've got a couple more people, which is good. Uh, Andy, do you want to go next? Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, I apologize if I cover anything that's overly obvious or that somebody else has already sort of um, touched on. I guess I lean towards uh, New Testament because I thought for as harsh as the world is in this, there's still an abundance of goodwill and neighborliness. Um, and people treating others with kindness, even though they're not receiving that same kindness in, in return. And I guess you could say, well, that doesn't work out. But I guess to me, that's sort of the point of it, um, that you do it even when you know it doesn't work out in your favor. And there's a lot of really serious, horrible moments in which that comes into play. But the one that stuck with me the most this time was kind of probably the most mundane example of it. It was the moment, I think just because I hadn't really, maybe this was overly obvious to everybody else, but the scene where he's about to go back with the water and he tells Carla Jean, you know, if I don't make it, tell mother that I love her. And she says, um, well, your mother's dead, Lou Ellen. Like it, and I was like, always kind of like puzzled by that part. I didn't think too much of it, but this time, and maybe this was obvious to everyone else, but it clicked. I'm like, oh, he's probably talking about her mother. And it doesn't even register with her that he could possibly be talking about her mother because her mother is shown to not really like him very much. It's very dismissive of him. And I don't know, maybe she has her reasons. I don't, that's a lot we don't see in the film, but I just thought that was kind of a powerful moment where he's like, not just saying like, I want to, you know, uh, work things out, have the best relationship with her, but I love her. Um, and she clearly doesn't seem to feel the same way. So. And in a movie like no country for old men, every little gesture of kindness or, um, grace is amplified, you know, because we're so desperate for it. Um, I think that's kind of touches on what Tim, Tim was saying too, is we just want that to appear. And so we see it expressed in any way. Um, it has extra resonance. Um, Hannah, would you like to jump in? Yeah, absolutely. Um, also my first time joining, so excited to be part of the conversation. Um, right. So from my perspective, um, and after watching your video essay, Josh, it, um, the Old Testament perspective really struck a chord with me. And I kind of want to make an argument specifically for the prophets, where it felt like there were these, you know, and you mentioned this earlier, Josh, as well, it felt like there were these signs like red flags throughout the movie especially for Llewellyn on his journey that um danger destruction was coming and there's three specific examples I just wanted to touch on that um were actually kind of um cushioned in a lot of humor the first one is the hitchhiker uh, or the the man who picks up Llewellyn as a hitchhiker talking about um no good is going to come of it and then the second one is the mariachis whenever he wakes up after he's been shot in Mexico and I speak Spanish and the lines were like, you tried to fly too close to the sun or you tried to fly with clipped wings. Like it has all this kind of, and it, it's so oh, really because of the, yeah, just because of the upbeat, um, upbeat music. But then it's obviously they're, they're kind of basically foreshadowing what's going to happen to him. They talk mm -hmm. about him wanting riches and playing with fire. And, and then the final one is the, the girl by the pool, you know, just before he's murdered and, and she warns as well. So, it felt to me just like it's it's dark like there it, it's a very um 
yeah, it, it's mostly shrouded in a, in a lot of darkness and hopelessness, but whispers of promise and whispers of hope, like in um, Ed Tom's dream at the end. So that's it, it just never is quite fulfilled, which is why I couldn't quite get on board with the New Testament perspective, though I totally appreciate the the views on intertestamental and New Testament, because that also, there's a great argument there as well. Yeah, whispers is a good word to use, I think, for the whatever hope we do get in this movie. And so there are prophet figures that makes a lot of sense to me. And as you're talking, I wonder if um, Ed Tom is also maybe something of a priest figure going back to this idea of holding the law continually again, throughout generations, he's part of a, a family of lawmen, right. And um, somewhat the similar role that the, the priests held in the old Testament Baird, it looks like you are next. Excellent. And you stole my point with the priest bit. I was hoping that. To... Oh, sorry. Sorry. Yeah, it's okay. But... It's your, your, it's your show. I'm just going to speak <laughs> up a couple of things. One, um, that discussion of the vast emptiness that's, you know, I agree with what everybody said, but let's also keep in mind that's been a constant theme in each of the movies we have watched, especially with Fargo with all the shots out in the snow with oh brother uh the shots of the field and i'm thinking especially the shots out in the radio station it you know there's still that emptiness so i think that's just a palette that they like to use to break out and and just give everyone you know a space to see where everything else is at and whether that's you know to inflect upon each of these stories it's hard to say because it's very common but the thing that, you know and i've never really thought about whether it's old testament or new testament it, it's for me, it's clearly Old Testament. Uh, but what I have been, uh, I'll get to my background in a moment, folks. But what, I'm, what I've, I really struggle is, which character is the most nuanced? Is it Ed Tom or is it Anton? It's, and it's the very, everyone else is kind of, I like what you said, it's kind of a card. Everyone else is floating between these two characters and what they're doing. And, what I ended up feeling is that Anton Chigurh has the most, if there's a character arc in anybody, he's got it. And this is going to be movie club first. I'm going to explain my wallpaper because I actually put some thought in what I wanted to do with this. And what this is, wow. is showing three different, it's showing three different phases of what we see with Anton Chigurh. And the first one is when he's killing, the first person we see him kill, and that's the deputy where he's strangling them. And that face is haunting. And I've never been able to find a term if that's a face of desperation or uh, determination that he's got to do this. And the, the officer's fighting and he's just determined not to let that officer win and live. And then we go through almost seems like every person he runs into gets killed. Then you get to the coin toss scene, which I think is the most powerful scene in the whole movie. And I always want to give credit to the, the storekeeper. I think the fact that he can hold up as an actor to Javier Bardem is very respectful. But what we see here is the storekeeper's not necessarily in Javier Bardem's way of what he's got to do. So he's going to give that person an opportunity. He's going to throw it to chance. And, and I don't think this, I know this doesn't align with the, the, the quote at the end about the coin, but I think 
she's just trying to justify why she shouldn't have the coin toss. And he's just, the shop owner justifies better because he's, what do I have at stake? But it shows that Anton Shaker is not going to kill everybody. He's going to give you know, an opportunity to once or another. And then the last shot, which is kind of dark to see, that's the shot when he's in the hotel room, when Tom Bell comes in. And I remember in the movie, first time I see it and every time I see it, since, why? That is the only time he tries to avoid. It's the only time he actually shies away. And there's almost fear in his face. And so this is where it comes to me is that Anshan Shigur is the sin. Sin is determined to go out and ruin people's lives. Sometimes people have the opportunity to with the chance they don't have to follow sin or they can get away with it. But if you look at uh, Ed Bell as, as the law, as the priest, as the keeper of the law, which sin can't control, sin is still at the mercy of the law. And that, that explanation is the only thing I can come up with that gives me a reason why Anton Sugar actually hides away in the one time in the movie. And that's where I put Harley as an Old Testament film. Yeah, I, I've always thought of Sugar as a, a figure of chaos, but that's an interesting kind of twist on that as specifically sin. And look at look at Baird coming with the visual aids. I mean, holy cow, it's raising the bar for us here. Um, okay, I think I'll, for I sure we've got- jump in. Yeah, go ahead, Zachary. With, so there's just so much good stuff in the comments. I'm like trying to find a way to condense yeah. it and also oh, share. Take a minute but... or two and, and catch us up. Yeah, no. So I think to what was just talked about, I feel like, yeah, I love this point you made, Scott, about Anton being challenged at the end, even if he isn't really changed. You bring up this great point about how it causes maybe he has doubt, you know, in the whole coin toss a little, which allow which like are those like little bits and nuggets of hope that I think a few comments before, like Sarah, you were you and also Scott, you were talking about like the the, you know, when the hospital the store owner sees, you know, Llewellyn and the hospital gown and everything, right? Like that. And just these moments of goodness that kind of help keep things, yeah, hopeful and alive. And so, yeah, just all the affirming points that have been made about the the need and desire that's created for, for wanting change in the face of a lot of this brokenness. So. Yeah, good stuff in the chat. I'm, I'm not able to keep up with all of that. So <laughs> thanks. Thanks, Zachary. I did see something too. I'm scrolling back here. Um, which I thought was interesting back to the intertestamental idea, mm -hmm. trying to see who it was, but, um, the fact that it's set on the U S Mexico border, right. someone had pointed out. Um, so I'm not sure if that has come up yet, but Jason, that was you. So, um, yeah, that was interesting too. All right. It looks like, um, Jacob, uh, you wanted to chime in as well. Yeah. Uh, first off, Andy, to go back to something you said a minute ago, thank you for your observation about. Llewellyn's line, uh, tell, tell mother I, I love her because as, as much as I love this movie, as many times as I've seen it, that is the one line that has never made sense to me. And so there was a, you know, your observation of, well, maybe Llewellyn was uh, referring to Carla Jean's mom and Carla Jean just that went over her head that had never occurred to me. And I think that that makes a lot of sense. That's, that's a really great point. But, um, like I said, this is one of my favorite, maybe my favorite movie of all time, certainly my favorite Coen Brothers movie. I've seen it a number of times. And uh, 
after the the most recent viewing kind of preparation for this, I I did not have a I did not have a lot to say. Like I was just kind of speechless, and I I, I don't really know what to make of it other than I am solidly in the Old Testament camp. I think this is about as bleak as they come in terms of the Coen Brothers movies. I think there are, you know, like Carla Jean's line, the coin don't have no say. Uh, Ellis's line kind of towards the end where he says to um, Ed Tom, you, you don't know what God thinks. I think there are just a few people that kind of have somewhat of a clue about what is what God is like. But even, you know, kind of going to the intertestamental thing, no one's quite sure yet. Like no one's quite sure what grace is yet. So I think other than, you know, just a few instances, this is just so bleak. And the closest thing that we get to any sort of higher power or person in control is Shigur. And that is just, uh, I mean, he is holding the cards for most of this movie. And that is just a, a very dark thought. But I mean, what, what um, the one thing that I was left with after this viewing was how removed, um, how removed Ed Tom was throughout the movie. As soon as he got a little bit of a taste of how crazy the situation was he started just to recede and i think there's even the scene where he's in a diner and his deputy um wendell wendell comes in and gives him an update and everything about ed tom's demeanor is i have i've checked out like he could not be less interested in pursuing this man just because he has it's, it goes back to his line at the beginning i don't i don't have any idea what i'm up against so i don't want to shove my chips in on something that i, that I don't understand it just becomes clear that the whole situation is just beyond him. I think, you know, somebody asks, asked in the chat, like, what do you make of the title of the movie, No Country for Old Men? And I think that's just it. Like, he's gotten to the point where he just cannot keep up anymore. Um, and so I think what I was just left with was uh, the futility of the law to really do anything in the face of evil. And Tom comes close a couple of times, but he never actually meets Shigur. So the law never actually comes face to face with um, the villain in the movie, which that I'd never noticed that before. Yeah. And, and it was just like the pursuit of the villain almost stopped. And so that is just, I think that speaks to the laws, you know, apart from grace, the laws, um, inability to affect any sort of change in the face of evil, any sort of real change. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, I didn't have a ton of thoughts other than just like, Oh, this is bleak and the law cannot do anything in the, in the face of, of this man. So, uh, yeah, Old Testament for yeah. sure. Yeah, that the fact that they never meet um, to me also makes Shigur even more of a specter, like this, uh, you know, a non-human entity in some ways. Even though we see him very much in the physical world, the fact that they don't share space um, lends to this idea. Um, all right, we've got about ten minutes left. Um, there are a couple of good questions that we could turn to in the chat. Uh, Tim, I see that you've got your hand raised. Maybe you can uh, give us one last quick thing, and um, then we'll turn to some of those questions in the chat. Yeah, it was just in response to that stuff about um, Javier's character being changed throughout the film. And uh, one thing that we were sort of discussing a little bit was the. Um, the offers for help that are sort of a consistent pressure throughout the film. You know, everybody, Javier, Javier often meets people and, you know, they offer him a lift, they offer the jump start his car and he, he turns on them with this sort of brutality. Uh, and then right at the end, we were talking about the little boy who just offers him the shirt off his back for, for nothing. And that, that, that kid survives that and there's, there's no retribution towards him. He's just sort of sent away. Uh, I don't know whether that's him being changed by the course of this film or whether it's, the persistent offers of of grace maybe that's the element of grace in the film is how many people are willing to extend kindness to somebody they've never met uh so yeah 
Yeah, yeah, that I can I can see that that scene where the the kid who he pays for his shirt, I see that partly the way I read it was that Sugar almost always seems to feel the need for there to be some balance, you know, even when he doesn't um, need to pursue Llewellyn anymore, he's going to because that will balance out um, the deal essentially. Um, and that was almost, uh, to me, he was insisting that for the kid, because that's, I don't want to use the word fairness when it comes to sugar, but like a balance in the universe, um, which is just, I don't know where that fits into his character. Um, but it seems to be a quality that, um, is common throughout the move. So yeah, karma, um, Tim is mentioning there in the chat. So I did see, again, we should probably wrap up in a couple of minutes here, but I did see Isabel, I think, ask a question that. I think I have the answer to, and it looks in the chat like most people do, but um, we don't see Carla Jean murdered by Chigurh. We don't see the result of the coin toss there, um, but my reading has been that he does because, as someone else mentioned in the chat, um, he checks his boots when he comes out of the house, which we've seen him do before, but I'm curious if someone else has a different reading of that and, you know, and we can maybe end this by think, thinking nicely that Carla Jean is still out there somewhere. Does, that, does anyone think she might have made it? No, doesn't look like it. It's a good question. And it's one that, you know, pops up every time. It's probably like that hope thing, right? It's like, mm -hmm. I want to hope that she makes it this time. Um, but uh, it seems to me she probably doesn't. Um, Sarah, did you have any um, any final thoughts or anything we haven't touched on that you wanted to kind of throw out there for the last couple of minutes to hear? whether it's a different character um, or um, yeah, I don't know. Or maybe we can circle back to that idea of Ed Tom's dream at the end. If there's a particular interpretation anyone likes. Oh man. Um, if we talk about the dream, I might start to cry. So <laughs> we'll okay, see about well, we... that. Yeah. Um, yeah. One incredibly technically incredible movie, just the, the mastery of the cinematography and the blocking and the lighting and everything in there. Um, so just not just thematically, but also just technically, this this movie is just about perfect. But I think one of the things that um, I noticed on this watch around is that this is a movie that's not going to lie to you about how bad it can be out there in the world. And at the same time, everybody who's involved in it is still continuing to fight for life or fight to be decent. I mean, Sugar uh, accepted, obviously, um, and Woody Harrelson's character as well. But most of the people that Llewellyn runs into um, tend to veer more towards the side of trying to, even if they don't necessarily like succeed, they're trying to extend that grace. Like there's that shopkeeper that he buys the boots from. And when he walks back into the store, just in uh, a hospital gown, he asks the shopkeeper, like, do people walk in unclothed to your store a lot? And the man just says it's unusual. And then it's just implied that he helps him. And I love right. that moment. It's just a very gentle moment of grace in an otherwise very ugly movie. Yeah, that's a great touch. Um, he's gonna he's gonna kind of meet him where he, he's at in his need, um, and not hold it against him that he's coming into his store that mm -hmm. way. We should probably turn to the poll, and while I'm doing that and launching the results, um, Zachary, um, what what do you think? Where were you at the beginning of the conversation? Are you still there in terms of Old Testament or New Testament? Um, what are you thinking? Yeah, no, it's interesting. I feel like I commented about this in the chat, but I think Andy's comment, I think I kind of really want to focus on the ending a lot. So I think watching it the whole time before the car crash scene, or even with the car crash scene, I was definitely like, 
very bleak, the randomness of the violence, definitely an OT film. And there are just so many sequences where I thought it like, I think what kept coming to mind was that passage in scripture about the rape of Dinah and just how thinking about that and just like the death and destruction that came after that too. And just like, I think it was Jacob just like lamenting the senselessness and how much it escalated. And that's just so much, so much of what it seemed like. But I think the end, I just really viewed all of that as sort of a setup and a punchline for the Coens to deliver hope at the end. Because I think when the car crash happens, as a lot of people have mentioned here, like it's kind of like a yes, like he finally, like Sugar finally gets the divine justice. That's just because it happens really out of nowhere. It's like broad daylight. It's not like it's a crazy traffic thing, right? It just happens. But to me, it was such a clear gospel picture of, you know, these, these kids, it's the impartial in their distribution and gener and generous heart of care and how much more like does that mirror christ who you know these kids don't know what sugar has done right they but i think the kids like i'm still gonna help you and how much more does christ knowing the entirety of our story and brokenness still heal and help even if you know it's not like sugar at the end he's like oh great i had this act of generosity i guess i'll stop being a hitman you're doing stuff like right. that. He'll right. probably just keep doing the same thing he's going to do. Just like, thanks yeah. for the help. I'm just going to keep going. But yeah, to, it just mirrored so well. Like we do that so often, you know, in our own lives. Mm -hmm. like, receive healing. We might just keep going the same way, but that doesn't stop. That doesn't negate. I think the importance of goodness and a lot of that. So, yeah. You know, so where? So where'd you land? Scene. I'd say yeah, New Testament towards the end. Just oh, wow. purely okay. because of the ending scene, though. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I've been All right. on that train. Well, um, let's see the poll here. It looks like um, Old Testament took it with 75%, but man, there were some persuasive arguments um, there for news. So I thought this would be a little bit closer. Um, really, maybe intertestamental is what won, though. I mean, that's <laughs> I'm wondering if you could say that about all the Cohen brothers films. So um, I don't know. Yeah, do we, do we make that an option for our next conversation from True Grit? <laughs> I don't know. All right, let's see here. Speaking of our next meeting, get some information up here. Um, that is going to be on Sunday, March 27, 2 p.m. Central. We're going to do another afternoon one. Um, yep, it'll be True Grit. I should have that video essay for True Grit available. I'm hoping um, it'll be on the Think Christian YouTube channel tomorrow. Uh, that's the plan. So it should be available pretty soon here while this conversation is fresh in uh, in your minds. And yeah, for those of you who might be listening to this, to the recording and hearing this on the podcast or watching on YouTube, um, if you want to join for that gathering on Sunday, March 27, just do that at thinkchristian.net slash movie club. Uh, that's Oscar Sunday, so um, which I will be watching later in the afternoon. I just devote the whole day to the movies if you want. Uh, after church, of course, um, we'll we'll talk movies and um, keep rolling right into the Oscars. So thank you very much, um, Zachary, for um, monitoring the chat and jumping in again. Thank you very much, Sarah. Um, Sarah, anything coming up with the scene and believing you you want to plug or or anything else you're working on? 
Yeah. So Seeing and Believing is a weekly film podcast that I host with Kevin McLenathan. It's part of the Christ and Pop Culture Network. Um, new episodes are every Friday. So um, every week we discuss a new release. And then we also discuss a movie that one of the co-hosts has not seen. So last week we talked about Cyrano. And then we also discussed the 2015 movie Carol, which I had never seen before. So uh, coming up this Friday, we'll be watching uh, The Batman. And then uh, we will also be watching a lesser known movie by Kathy Yan. Uh, the movie is called Dead Pigs. Um, and for those who are not familiar, there's a bit of a DC Comics connection um, because she also went on to direct the Harley Quinn movie that came out a few years ago. So that's what's coming up with us. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, which, mm -hmm. I, which I liked. That was uh, that was one of the good DC ones, I think. Yes, it was. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. Thanks again, Zachary. Thanks for our, to everyone Thank you. for joining. Um, hopefully, we'll see you all back. Yeah, it is again um, a friendly time for the overseas folks. So we'll see. We've split these up between different times, and we'll probably do a survey after we wrap up this series and see what works best. Or mixing it up is maybe the best um, idea. But we'll see. We'll send you guys a survey to get some of your thoughts back on that otherwise um thank you this was a really good discussion i picked up and learned a bunch of things um and that's kind of the idea so thanks for doing that for me and uh, we will hopefully see all of you guys in march take care